Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 to chapter 4 13. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who was appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses, and with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message that they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." although his words were finished from the foundation of the world. For he he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, 
Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's not very well in life, isn't it, to, to start things, but very often it's, it's finishing that really matters. Think about jobs around the house. At the moment, I am sanding down the banisters, I am painting a wall, and I am plastering in a fireplace that needed mended. I have started all of those jobs, some of them some time ago, but I think that what um, my wife really wants is for me to finish one of them. Um, Or think about sports, very exciting, all the runners set off on the marathon, very exciting. But the moment, the greater moment for them is when they finish when they cross the line. Or think about marriage. We celebrate when people are engaged, understandably, celebrate, but you don't get a telegram from the Queen for that. The Queen knows better. She waits 60 years, and then she sends you a telegram to say, well done, because she knows that in life it's all very well to start things, but what really matters is to finish them. And that's really what the writer is saying about the Christian life in these two chapters of Hebrews. It's great. It's a wonderful thing to start, to to put your trust in Jesus and to begin to follow him. But it's a separate thing. It's a much bigger thing to finish that until the very end. The writer says that the life of faith is a journey and we need to finish the journey. You need to keep on going all the way until either you die or Jesus returns. Either way, we enter into the final promised rest of God. It's a passage about perseverance. What if you're, though, uh, not yet a convinced Christian? Well, the writer would say to you, you need to start the journey. You say, well, doesn't it sound a bit grim, though? Perseverance, all this talk about marathons. It sounds like this journey is not a really great life. Not at all. All of us in life, we need to know where we're headed. A lot of people in life, they don't know where they're headed. And it's no good to be aimless, with no fixed points on the horizon, just an expectation of more of the same and hopefully a bit better, but eventually, inevitably, worse and worse. It's right, of course, that we value each moment as we go. It's it's important how we travel, but it's more important where we end up. At the end, will we enter God's rest forever with him, or will, will you be shut out of that? Hebrews 3 and 4 is about perseverance, 
finishing the journey, and we can helpfully break it down into two parts. Uh, It's about the journey we're on, and it is about how to finish the journey. So first then, the journey we are on. Um, As we look at it, the most obvious point about this section and the way that it's written is that he's using the past events of Israel and their journey out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. He is using those past events as a present example for his readers. It's likely that the Hebrews were of a Jewish background, and so they knew about Moses and the slavery in Egypt and how the Lord brought his people out and he led them through the Red Sea and into the wilderness and towards the promised land. It's a gripping story. I don't know if any of you saw, they made a film of it again just at the end of last year with Ridley Scott. I haven't seen it, but you can understand why you make a film about this sort of thing because it's a gripping story from Israel's past. But it is also a present example Because like the Israelites, says the writer, the Christian is on a journey. He makes this parallel. We have been rescued from the Egypt of our sin, of condemnation, of God's anger. Instead of the Passover lamb, it was the blood of Jesus that has saved us from that. We've been rescued, and now he is leading us through life on our way to the promised land of rest. Not Canaan, but the new creation. You can see the parallel. It's really helpful, this, for seeing how the Bible fits all together. The Old Testament provides us with pictures or models that help us to understand Jesus. So later on in the book, he calls these things shadows. The law, the sacrifices, the temple, uh, and this journey. These things in the Old Testament are the shadows that point forward, and the reality is Jesus. It's as though as he worked in these ways through history, the Lord was preparing us to understand Jesus when he came, so that when he came, we had the categories to understand him. And it's true, isn't it, that the journey of Israel through the wilderness is a brilliant visual aid for the Hebrews as the writer speaks to them, because they're on a journey with a wonderful end point, but it's not an easy journey. And that's the point that he's been talking to them about. It's not an easy journey. There were lots of Israelites who started off on the journey through the wilderness, and they never made it. They didn't make it into the promised land because of unbelief, hard, sinful hearts, rebellion. Many of the people, they didn't trust God as he led them through the wilderness. The way was hard. Many of them didn't trust God. And they turned, or they, would, they, they thought about wanting to go back, back to Egypt. It was a hard journey. The um, particular uh, example that the writer keeps on referring to is the rebellion at Meribah. Um, if you're interested, it's in Numbers 20. That's what Psalm 95 that the writer keeps on quoting from is talking about. Um, the Lord had led the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness and they're thirsty, and there's no drinks in the wilderness. And so instead of saying, well, look, okay, God's promised that he'll take care of us, and we've just seen him do amazing things to save us from Egypt. So we are thirsty, and not quite sure how God's going to do this, but I'm pretty sure he's got it covered. Instead of saying that, they said, in effect, oh, my goodness, God's forgotten all about us. We should go back to Egypt. How did God feel about that? 
well, understandably very angry. He was provoked, that's what the passage says, because they're so ungrateful. The people were so ungrateful, and they, they wouldn't trust him in spite of all that he'd done for them. He'd made these promises to look after them and to get them there, but they don't believe him. And so, and so God said to them, he promised them, made another promise, that you people who don't believe in me will never enter my rest. Uh, it's only a fortnight's journey, a fortnight's walk from Sinai, just outside of Egypt, to the promised land, a fortnight. But it took the Israelites nigh on 40 years because God kept them wandering around in circles until most of that generation, the people who hadn't trusted him, were all dead. And then he led them in, uh, led in the other generation with Joshua. And that's the parallel. In Hebrews 3 and 4, the writer is using these past events as a present example. He's saying, their journey was hard, your journey is hard, and the same warning applies. There's subtlety and complexity in the argument. There are some different parts to it. But the conclusion is stated really clearly in chapter 4, verse 11. Look at that, please. That's the end of the chain, 4.11. This is his conclusion. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest, the new creation that lies ahead of us, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as we see in the story of Israel. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In other words, you see what happened to Israel? You see what they did? Well, don't make the same mistake. Keep on trusting God. Finish the journey. That's the message that we've heard before in Hebrews because the writer knew that his friends were under pressure to stop following Jesus. And so he writes to them, say, come on, keep on going. Don't make the mistake that Israel made. Keep on going. We mustn't stop following Jesus. We mustn't drift from following him. We need to keep on trusting in that promise of a glorious future right to the end. We need to live for that. And don't turn back and settle down in the here and now. This is the journey we're on. And it's a powerful thing, this Old Testament illustration. It really helps us to imagine it, to visualize and feel it. So you think about the, the, um, the Israelites moving through the wilderness, and they're weary. And that's how we feel sometimes, isn't it, as we follow Jesus? We grow weary. Or we think of them always sleeping under canvas, always in tents, never in a house. And that's a picture of our life now. As Christians, we're just passing through. This world is not our home. And so while others around us settle down as if it was home, we're living for the future in how we use our time, how we use our money, how we raise our children, the priorities that we have for them and the priorities we show to them. We're not living for this world. We're living for the world to come, and that's not easy. In tents instead of solid houses. For the Christian, like the Israelites, we are waiting, aren't we, for our good things. Our hopes are never fulfilled now in this world. We are looking forward, and that's not an easy thing. And like them, we also face the temptation to turn back the pleasures, the ambitions of Egypt. They call to us, perhaps um, the pleasures of the old life from which God rescued us, or perhaps the life we feel might have been if God hadn't rescued us. We look back and it's a rosy picture of Egypt. We forget about the slavery and we're tempted to return. 
It's the journey we're on. It's like theirs. It's hard. But also, finish the parallel. Think about the destination. When Israel eventually got through the wilderness and crossed the River Jordan and made it into the Promised Land, all of their dreams began to be fulfilled. It was just as good as God had said it would be. Those of you who are in youth church, you're reading Joshua, and this is what it's all about. And with apologies for spoilers, this is what happens at the end of Joshua in chapter 21. I'm going to read you. Um, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers." Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made had failed. All had come to pass. And other passages in the Old Testament fill out that picture of life in the promised land, that this was a land of plenty where the Israelites, each family had house and land with fig trees and olives and vines and where the people lived in rest. And doesn't that sound good? But that's only the shadow, the new creation that's ahead of us still. That will be the wonderful reality. And so we need to keep going. Remember the writer's conclusion. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, finish the journey, so that no one may, uh, may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Don't stop. Don't drift. Make sure you make it. That's the journey we're on. But the question is, how? How can we keep on going? Practically, how? And that's what the writer moves on to, the way to finish the journey. But just before we look at that, it'll be helpful to to pause here and to consider a theological worry that might be uh, rising from what we're seeing in the book of Hebrews. I mentioned this last week. It's the question, can a Christian really fall away? Um, Hebrews seems to be saying that that is possible, you know, saying, make sure you don't fall away. But doesn't that conflict with what the Bible says elsewhere? In theology, Christians talk about the preservation of the saints, the idea that once God has saved you, that's it. He won't let you go. And that's a wonderful idea. It gives us great um, assurance. Some of you, if you've been around a while, you may remember an American gentleman called um, Joe Novenson who visited and preached actually on Hebrews 2, and it, it was remarkable. Um, he, he told us that the grip that God has on you is firm, and in our better moments, we grip onto him as well. But sometimes we let go, and sometimes it's worse than that. And if you remember, um, we, it's like we're trying to escape, but his grip on us is firm. It's wonderful promise, and that does seem to be backed up by what the Bible says elsewhere. So Jesus, in John 6, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Or a bit later, in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. 
And that's what Paul says as well as Jesus. Not least in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of, of God that is in Christ Jesus. If we're his, then we're his forever. But if that's true, how can the writer to the Hebrews warn his Christian readers not to fall away? Because surely that's not possible. Well, it's worth saying that um, this warning about falling away isn't just something that comes in Hebrews, uh, something Jesus says. So you can look up later Matthew 24, 9 to 14, or Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. They both say the same thing. It's the same warning about falling away. So how can we make sense of this? Well, Hebrews 3 and 4 is actually a really great passage to be looking at when we're considering this question, because in speaking about Israel in the wilderness, it is essentially making the point that not all of the people of God, not all of the people who looked like they were the people of God, were actually the people of God. So look, please, um, chapter 4, verse 2. For good news came to us, just as to them... But the message they heard, that's talking about the Israelites in the wilderness, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. All the Israelites heard the promise of God, but they didn't all believe it. They were all there among the visible people of God, those who had been brought out of Egypt, but some of them, by their hard-heartedness, their unbelief, their lack of faith, showed themselves not really to be the people of God at all. And that's what we observe. Uh, People sitting in church all around the country uh, on Sunday, uh, they know the Bible, they have bread and wine, they listen to sermons, they act as if they're Christians. Uh, People think they are, maybe they think they are, but they're not because they don't trust God. Like Israel We all hear the same message, or speak the same message, but some of us believe it, and some of us do not. There is the visible church, the people who seem to belong to Christ, but crucially, there is also the invisible church, those who really do belong to Christ. And presumably, there is substantial overlap between those two things, but not 100%. It's this distinction, I think, that helps us to make sense of this issue. When God breaks into a person's life, unites them to Christ, forgives their sins, puts his spirit inside them, that is a work he will never go back on. Once saved, always saved. Absolutely. But who does that apply to? Not to the visible church, but to the invisible church. And the point about the invisible church is it's invisible. Only God sees the heart. Only he knows truly whether grace has broken in. We see the fruit of grace, you know, its effects in people's lives, things like obedience and joy and trust in God and perseverance. Um, This letter, Hebrews, was written to a local church, to the visible people of God, a gathering of people, I guess not unlike this one. It would have been read out in a meeting, not not unlike this. And who would hear it? That's the point. All kinds of people. And so the writer is speaking from his point of view to our point of view, a human point of view. 
He's saying, only God knows your hearts. And so I say to you, persevere. Now, in talking about um, this sort of thing, the danger is always that the wrong sort of people are unsettled. Here we start to worry, well, am I really a Christian? Um, If what I've said has worried you, then that's probably a really good sign. Because we're about to see in just a minute that it is the soft-hearted, pricked conscience people who do belong to God and who will finish the journey. But I think this is how we make sense of what the Bible says. From God's point of view, the preservation of the saints is a promise. His grip on his people is unbreakable. But we don't see things from his point of view. We might like to think we do. We might sometimes speak as though we knew what God was doing, but we don't. From God's point of view, the preservation of the saints is a promise, but from our point of view, the perseverance of the saints is a duty. And so that's why Hebrews, along with Jesus and Paul and the rest of the Bible, says to us, persevere. At the end, we... We'll look back and we'll give all the glory to God. We'll see how it was his work. He shielded us from the trials and temptations that would have been too strong for us to bear. We'll see how he bore with us through periods of weakness and backsliding in our lives. We will see how he kept his promise to us. But until that day, we must press on. But how? Practically how? If you've zoned out, we're getting back on track now. How do we finish the journey? The writer says three things. The first thing is the major note in the book, but it's not the major note in the passage. The first thing is that we must consider Jesus. If you remember that from last week, that's how the writer argues through the whole book. He shows us wonderful, rich, and detailed pictures of Jesus and says, look at him and stick with him. He's better than all the alternatives. Look at him, stick with him. Nobody else can help you the way Jesus can. Where else are you going to go? Only Jesus is the one you need. Look at him. Stick with him. Consider Jesus. Um, That is here, if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, that links into what we saw last week. Our God became our brother to save us. And then he says, consider Jesus, verse 1. And then if you look at the the final paragraph that we didn't read, but the final paragraph in chapter 4 that bridges into the next section, it's the same thing. He says, look at your high priest, Jesus. He's in heaven. Draw near to him. He's the one who can help you. Stick with him. That's the main line in the book. That's what we're about to get into in chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, all the rest. But it's not the main line here, I don't think. there um, There are two practical instructions that take center stage ahead of that. First, The writer says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You want to finish the journey? Then today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's the line that he quotes three times from Psalm 95. The way to keep going in the Christian life, it it, it all comes back to how you relate to the word of God. When God speaks... How do you listen when you're reading the Bible for yourself in the morning or um, you're in a Bible study in your small group or listening to the Bible being explained here on a Sunday? How do you listen? And it's even wider than that. When a friend says something to you that pricks your conscience 
or when without any provocation, your conscience just jumps up on its own and bites you about something that's going on. Those things are not the voice of God, but they are very often um, echoes of the Bible, which is the voice of God. How do you listen? Let's think about some really practical examples. Um, Suppose something comes up in Bible teaching that you know directly challenges something in your life. So in Cord, many of you here in Cord, studying the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus speaks about lust and anger. And sometimes you're sitting in a Bible study like that and you just feel convicted and you know that something, um, habit or attitude in your life that is wrong in the light of what this passage is saying. And in that moment of hearing, you have a choice to make. You can either shrug off that sense of conviction, say, oh, well, I, I wouldn't manage to change. You can't teach an old dog new tricks, or I'm sure he'll forgive me. You can shrug it off, or else you can act on it. A soft heart will act, trusting that the Holy Spirit will help you. And that's how you finish the journey. Or a different example. Um, suppose you are listening to a sermon on a really tricky part of the Bible, like Hebrews 5 or Romans 8, 1 to 4, or you're reading it in your quiet time. But it's hard to understand. It's just hard. You look at the verses, it's not immediately clear what they are saying. In that moment of hearing, you have a choice to make. You could either move on and say, oh, well, I don't really get this, but there will be another sermon next week. I'll have another quiet time passage tomorrow morning, and maybe I'll get something out of that. You just move on. Or... You read it again. You go over it. Think about it. Wrestle with it. Talk to someone. Look it up in a a book. Praying with a soft heart that the Spirit will help you to see. That's how you finish the journey. Or third example. Um, At home or at work, some situation, you just know the right thing to do. You know you have to do something. You have to be honest about something or you have to um, apologize to somebody for something you've done. Your conscience jumps up. It's echoing the Bible and you know what the right thing is to do. And in that moment of hearing, you have a choice. You either silence that impulse or else you act upon it, asking that Jesus would help you to do what is right. And that is how you finish the journey. In the language of Hebrews 3 and 4, everybody hears the word of God, but only some people listen to it. And we need to have soft, responsive hearts. The writer's words in chapter 4, verse 12, they're famous words, if you look at that. Many of us will have heard those words before, 4.12, but now we see the real meaning. That in our lives, the Bible needs to be a living, active force. Something sharp that will get inside us and pierce our hearts and lay our lives bare. Soft hearts is how you finish. Now, this is challenging, but it's not too challenging. Because think about Psalm 95 again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God does not ask you to live a whole life of faithfulness. Just today. He doesn't ask us to resist all the temptations that will ever come our way, only that which comes to us now. 
today. It's an enormous undertaking, the journey of faith. But it's broken up into 24-hour installments. So don't worry about tomorrow. Can you trust him today? Can you listen to him and serve him today? That's what matters. That is the way to finish the journey. And then finally, the other thing that the writer says to us about how to finish is this. Exhort one another every day. Look, please, at uh, chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. And this is what he says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Finishing the journey is not a solo effort. We're here to help one another. How often does God think I need encouraging? Every day. And it's the same for you. That means every Sunday. It means when we're here on a Sunday, we need to talk about proper stuff, not just pleasantries. Um, For some people here, it's probably more true in the mornings, but still, for some people here, we don't get that much chance in the week to be with other Christians. For us, this is it. This is our chance to be encouraged by other people. We need to talk about proper stuff on Sundays. But not just on Sundays, because the writer says that wouldn't be enough. Small groups are so important. Chance to be with other Christians and have this kind of contact. Or if that's genuinely not possible for you, then some other way of being with Christians, people who know you well enough to know how you're getting on. People who will notice if you start to stop or drift and who can help you. Those of us who are married, at the very least, we need to be able to do this with a husband or a wife. We need to think, how is she doing spiritually? How can I encourage her? How is he doing? Because it's easy, isn't it, in a marriage or a friendship to kind of play one another on side in our sin. My failings excuse your failings, and we both get worse and worse. I I send you an unwholesome joke in an email, and you laugh, and you send me one back, and all of a sudden, that sort of thing's fine, and we both get worse and worse. But it can work the other way around. When I'm raising my game, and that spurs you on to raise yours, which spurs me on to raise mine, and together, we press on. An exhortation it sometimes has to hurt people's feelings. Just think about the verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. It's quite blunt, isn't it? Exhortation sometimes has to hurt a person's feelings. Not often. Never with relish. But sometimes it is necessary to be an uncomfortable friend. If we're to be a true friend, that's what we need from one another. Because this, all all of this that we've talked about, this is what God uses to help his people to finish the journey. He says, consider Jesus. He says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. 
but exhort one another every day. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have set before us the promise of your future rest. We think about the land of Canaan and we see the picture of it and we long to know, to see the full reality of what you have in store for us. So Lord, help us to live for that. Help us to keep on going all the days of our lives. Help us to keep on going this day. Lord, please help us to be people who consider Jesus. Please help us to be the kind of church where we listen to your word. Please help us in those moments of decision as we hear to act with a soft heart. Help us be the sort of church where we will encourage one another on. Lord, please keep us going until we reach that rest and see you there. And we pray these things through the name of Jesus who died for us. Amen.